0: Hey everyone, it's Tuesday, November 17th, 2020. Welcome to episode 40 of the Ginger and the Beard podcast. I'm AJ, a.k.a. The Ginger. And I'm Reese, a.k.a.
1: The Beard. And on this week's show, we are joined by Sebastian Wolfram, founder and director of malting and roasting operations at Epiphany Craft Malts in Durham, North Carolina. Thank you for joining us, Sebastian. How's it going?
2: Good, good, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm Sebastian. I, I'm a.k.a. No <laughs> and um very
0: nice yeah very nice so,
2: so you know b- besides that right, i'm the uh uh owner and maltster of epiphany craft malt in durham north carolina and uh yeah you're s- behind me you see our warehouse and this is this is sort of where it all happens
0: That's awesome. Well, we're excited to learn more about that. And yeah, like Sebastian just said, if you guys aren't watching the video, I recommend you go check it out right now because he's got the, I think he takes the cake so far for number one backgrounds um, with the warehouse in the bag. It's pretty awesome. But we're glad that you could take some time out of your night to chat with us and honestly help us expand our knowledge of the brewing industry and process. And when it comes to malting, there's a ton to cover and we're just not like scratching the surface ourselves. So we're very curious about this. So um, I feel like we should just jump right in. And you've kind of already introduced yourself a little bit, but can you kind of just give us some background on where how you got involved in brewing, um, and and then how you started your company?
2: Yeah, so uh, let me try and do this uh, the short way. So I've been in brewing since 1997. So I, I grew up in outside of Munich in Germany, um, and then right out of high school started uh, an apprenticeship, which is sort of the normal path for you know craft craft positions of various kinds and jobs, uh, at Eyinger Brewery outside of Munich. Uh, some of you have heard about that small brewery. That's, that's pretty famous, uh, in the U S due to, uh, you know, the quality of the beer and the distribution that they have over here. Um, um, but for, from Bavarian standards, it's the typical regional uh, brewery, uh, in and around Munich. And, um, yeah. And so that's where I got going. And then, uh, through various uh myriads of my life i uh, ended up uh moving to the u.s in 2005 um and came to north carolina that's where my my now wife was i mean she was the reason for me to to leave germany and, and move here and so um uh and this was right before craft really got going at least in, in in north carolina and the southeast um when i got here there were 22 or so breweries in the state um and i came over as a as a as a brewmaster essentially working starting to work at, at one, of, one of those 20 breweries here in north carolina and um and they just changed the law here in the state um it was called pop the cap so up until then you could only brew 6% up to 6% uh by volume beers and so once that fell uh it, like the floodgates opened in in a good way and so um Uh, you know, within uh, two or three years, there were 80 breweries. And, you know, now I think we had close to 350, right? So it's, it's been this explosion, right? uh, Of breweries everywhere, but, but certainly also here. And so, um, yeah, so I've been along for this entire ride. I helped start the, the craft brewers guild uh, in the state in 2008. Uh, and got that off the ground. Um, and, uh, And then essentially over time in those years started thinking about what, what should be my, my real sort of role and path in, in craft beer. And so I ended up, uh, deciding to open a malt house. I'd become a maltster. That was sort of the, my, the, my destiny, I guess, in craft. Right. Yeah.
1: So that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh just interesting to kind of see how you kind of it, it just seems like you have like a widespread kind of hand in the in the industry throughout, you know, Virginia and in 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 wider. So um, you know, it's really cool to get a chance to talk to you. It sounds like you've got a lot of experience um being a brewmaster and then, you know, kind of using that to hone your skills and um start crafting malt for other brewmasters. So, really um nice to have a chance to st- uh, you know, sit here and kind of chat about this with you. Um, you know, so people that listen to this show are lovers of craft beer, obviously if they're listening you know, to, you know, shows like this. They clearly love craft beer, but not they might not necessarily understand how all of the ingredients play a role in developing the flavor of the beer. Certainly that's something that I've struggled with. I know that my counterpart here, the ginger, um, you know, certainly doesn't understand everything either. So we're trying to learn, and I'm sure our viewers are, can you give us a very high level understanding of what malts actually are and then what role um malts play in the brewing process?
2: Yeah. No, absolutely. I can do that. Um, so it, in the end, it you know, it it sounds simple, but it, it is it is a, a, a complex and really a skill skill and sort of science driven uh, process. So we only have two ingredients, right? The grain primarily barley, but we also malt wheat, rye, triticale, spelt, corn, rice. I mean, we do all kinds of stuff here at Epiphany Malt. All kinds of small grains you can essentially malt and uh, the other ingredient is water and so those are the only two ingredients we use and the rest is sort of skill and equipment and all this and and malting is the controlled sprouting of those grains you know primarily barley it's a stick with barley because it's the most obvious for brewers right so um the grain comes in uh from harvest and then year-round from the farmer's bins or storage facilities. Um, and, uh, and we essentially get it wet in the malt house, uh, as if it's in the ground somewhere, right? In the field, when it rains, it's sort of the same, same trick. And once the grain has gotten enough moisture so that it's safe to start growing a plant, that's really how, how this works, it starts sprouting. And that's when the malting process really starts. So the initial day is, is, is steeping, soaking the grain. And then once sprouting and germination kicks in, uh, that's that's then sort of the first real important step in malting, which is the the uh, the the moisture allows all these enzymes that are either present in the grain or that the grain actually generates out of its building blocks, right? The minerals, the proteins, uh, and 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 creates enzymes to break down the starch. So the starch part of the kernel is essentially the energy uh, storage for the plant. So the plant has a chance to get out of the ground rootlets and a leaflet up so it can get energy from the sun, right? And, and has access to nutrients. And in order to get there, it needs, it needs sort of its own little uh, gas tank, right? And so, <laughs> so that starch is that gas tank. And as a monster, we access that. And so for the next five days, roughly five, six days of germination, that breaks down and those enzymes get to work. And then we dry the grain, right? Then the last step is the kilning part, uh, as it's called. And so we dry the grain back down so it doesn't go bad, right? It doesn't start molding um, and you can mill it, right? It's it's nice and brittle at that point as you get it when you, when you start brewing. And what has happened is, in that entire week, the grain essentially has broken down its building blocks into into small units of sugars and proteins, um, and and doing kilning as we dry it down, depending on how we do it, we put these building blocks partially back together and create colors and flavors along with it, right? These typical colors and the malt flavors that that are variations, and um, and at the end of all this. You know, we put it in bags that you can see behind me here. And in the bag is essentially a a modified enzyme-active grain that is called malt. Um, And that's the only way you can brew, right? You couldn't just use a raw barley or raw wheat, uh, mill it in. All you would end up is porridge, right? This would not be beer. It wouldn't ferment. And so malting is essentially, literally essential to brewing. You couldn't do without
0: Wow. Yeah. that's, that's a lot. Yeah, I think, When I said that we, <laughs> we scratched the surface, I think, I don't remember it was a few episodes ago. I had a, a beer and I can't remember which one it was at this point, but it, I, I talked a little bit about the malts and, um, that exact process that you mentioned, of course, at a much higher level <clears throat> with my, my little understanding. Um, and when I started to research some of it, the science behind it is like, it was just like way over my head, like, you know, how detailed and how specific all of it was. Um, and we're excited to kind of dig, dig into that a little bit more. So, but just to kind of round that out. So when you put the malt into the brewing process, essentially the malt is what supplies the sugars for the yeast to feed on. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. So this, right. this, this the enzymes that come with it, break down, the complex starches into sugars and proteins primarily, right? And that's then why those are then make foam and feed the yeast, right? And exactly. And essentially makes the alcohol.
1: And the sprouting awesome. the sprouting process is what unlocks those starches and allows, you know, those different components to be broken down. And then you use the kilning process to bring it all back together and add – it sounds like you're able to have a little bit of um, – um, impact on on what the final product product is during that kilning process. So I'm assuming there's different ways that you can that you can kiln because um, you had mentioned different colors and consistencies potentially um, through that process. Yeah. So yeah,
2: so th- this is sort of where 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 sort of experience and training and, and so sort of skill comes in. Um, so as I said, we have just barley and water, right? Those are two ingredients, and depending on where the moisture level is and how you dry down the grain is where you make a uh, color flavor um, and, and then also drive out off flavors, right? So DMS is one of those. If you don't kill correctly, mostly at the very end of the killing process, uh, you, you're not essentially driving out some of those off flavors. And so you, you, as a brewer, you then end up having, more challenge boiling it off and not having uh, you know the DMS off flavor in your beer, for example, and um, and and color is really tricky to hit. I mean, you really have to understand um, your malting process in order to make a, a a Pilsner malt, right? Very light color to a Vienna, to a Munich, um, and and once you get beyond those Munich, those, those amberish colored uh, malts. You, you switch over into a roaster, right so that that's the second part we, we can talk about once we've talked about malting. Um, and um, yeah, and so it's you know it, it takes it takes understanding your equipment and the ingredients you work with. Um,
0: yeah yeah, that's a perfect segue because one of the benefits you know reading and doing some research on your site of epiphany, is that you talk about how you don't floor, you don't do the floor steeping as opposed to you have a kiln box. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what the differences are, you know, in my, in my, again, my very short amount of research, um, you know, I I saw some pictures of, you know, it looked like somebody's basement and a bunch of grain scattered out and just water sitting there. And it's just steeping in the floor, which I'm sure is a sanitary process. I'm sure that's just a standard procedure. Um, But on, on the flip side, you check out your website and you've got a what's called a kiln box, and you know, saying how that's a allows you to do different things with with the malt. Can you tell us like, what are the benefits of using that as opposed to the floor uh, floor steeping?
2: Yeah, sure. So so there's two different ways uh, of of sort of making malt. There's really the traditional way you just talked about this floor malting, right, where it's spread out over a smaller floor for craft brewers or these sort of giant warehouses for for the still commercial floor monsters mostly in england um who still do that um and uh, and so that's that's basically the process how how humanity has done it for the last whatever 8000 years when, when sort of making alcohol from grain was discovered uh by accident so the assumption is that somebody left grain out it got wet uh it sprouted right it's created these sugars, yeast got in, it fermented, and then somebody drank it and was exhilarated and, and it's like, Hey, we gotta do this more <laughs> often right. That's sort of the short story. And so, so this traditional floor moulding is essentially still that, right? You have you have um you have grain, you bring it out on the floor, you you water it down, um uh you know, with with you know watering technique, whatever you have, right? Buckets or a hose or or whatever, very simple, and you, you basically just just do do like you would do gardening in some sense, and and what it creates is a is is a floor, and 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 uh, the germination that then sets sets in uh, creates a heat and CO two, right? So it's it's an active metabolism like many others, and so if if you look would look at it through a, a heat sensor, you would see uh, you know a, a, like a shaggy rug in terms of heat. There's hotter spots and, and cooler spots across that floor, and and so people have all these techniques with raking and flipping it over to kind of even out the grain over the four or five days it germinates. But these floor malts end up having a sort of uh, unique character and and of of slightly over and under modified grains because of all these variations that you have, um, and uh, and and so um, so maris otter the the is the the typical. Uh, malt out of england that's floor malted still uh you know at warminster for example they do that and on a large scale and so that's what a lot of homebrewers um certainly still still get when they buy english grain and commercial brewers sometimes still do the same thing and so so it's it is somewhat more uncontrolled traditional malting right and so what we are doing here is um and that was sort of part of the 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 concept of starting Epiphany I, as a brewer, right, who's brewed for for many years uh, at various size breweries, um, getting excellent malt was key, right, and being able to produce something that I would want to brew with, and so looking for this type of equipment was uh, five six seven years ago a real challenge because craft malt hadn't really taken off. There was a handful, but very very hands on uh, the, the traditional style. Um, and so the boxes that we have essentially um, are modern malting and it's all done by forced air. So the way the box works is, is you fill it up and it has a floor in it and the floor is similar to a laudaton, is perforated. And so the, the grain sits on top of that floor uh, three, four feet up. And the way you control temperature and humidity is you send air through that floor and it, and it comes up through, goes through the grain and basically uh, evens out the temperature across the entire box in this case, right? And so the the 20,000 pounds we have in one of these boxes, uh, all the kernels have essentially the same temperature uh, with a little variation from bottom to top and the same humidity uh, according to how we set it. And so we end up with a very even Homogeneous uh, batch character because of that, that level of control. And it makes, makes for a very even flavor and colored malt.
0: Very nice.
1: So you said it sits on like a, a perforated, um, floor. So is it still seep, um, steeping in water? Is it still in water or is it just the humidity that allows it to, um, sprout?
2: So the first two days is when you get it wet. And so you do, you do steeping in a steep tank. So it really looks like a fermenter. Um, and if you go on my website, there's a picture of, of of the top of the tank and there's sort of water and air um, floating around in, in one of the clips. And that's our steep tank. And so while the, water, while the grain is being steeped, we pump in a lot of air. Uh, and so that it's really like a, like a, like heavy, heavy whirlpool experience for this grain because the grain in the end doesn't like to be underwater and suffocate. And so this water air mixture, uh, is, is the perfect, it's like rain, right? It gets wet, but it has air access. And so that's really important. Um, uh, the first steeping and how the grain gets off the ground, uh, determines how well it goes for the next seven days. Um, and so uh, having control over that is really important. And I think another thing that when you when you guys mentioned, uh, and I think this is true for a lot of uh, home brewers, but also commercial brewers, is um, you know when I went to school in '97, '98, I already was in the in this sort of the the modern age of malting, I would say, definitely in the '90s. And so us brewers. There there are a lot less challenges thrown at us from a malt quality standpoint. And so it, in today's time, when you talk to brewers, right, commercial or home brewers, like you guys, everybody's like, well, I never really think about malt, right? I mean, it, it comes with the perfect color. It always works, right? There's never any challenges. So when I went to school, they still taught the brewers they may not do this anymore. What to do uh, when the malt is not performing correctly right It's evasive maneuvers in the malt uh, in the brew house but I mean this, you don't it, with all the testing equipment and, and the and the improvements um, and the technology, this is just no longer a thing. Malt is uh, well modified, highest quality I mean uh it really is autopilot for brewers in a good way.
0: Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> we just had, uh, Jimmy Lachron on, he's the head brewer at smart mouth brewing in, in Norfolk. And we were kind of talking about, you know, the importance of some of these ingredients and how he, he gets different flavors and, and things like that. But, um, <clears throat> we also mentioned how Reese and I both used a home brewing, like craft a brew kit to, uh, do our first brewing, uh, first brewing experience, which was a lot of fun, but it, we used malt extract in, as part of those kits. Um, and I know that you know people who are more into home brewing move away from malt extract, and I think it's a more time-consuming, requires more equipment, larger equipment, things like that. Can you explain to us, from somebody who's a lot more knowledgeable in the subject, the difference between using malt and malt extract?
2: Sure. So, um, so malt is essentially um, you know the the primary ingredient, right, that you can buy directly. Um, but it requires all, everything you said, right? You need a mill, you need a, you know, a steep bag or a louder ton of some kind, right? The Gatorade bucket with the screen in it or whatever people do um, and, and to make this all, all come together. And so this, the, the extract is essentially, in most cases in the malt houses, they have these sort of syrup batch makers. So it's essentially like a brew kettle and you just evaporate you use the malt that you have and you evaporate it off and, and, and primarily that's, that's, you know, it was used for home brewers, but really it is for, for other food applications. So bread making and other industries use the syrup as a ready to mix. They don't have a brew house, right? For them, they just want some of these flavors and sugars and other properties. Um, and so that, that's what, what the syrup is. And it's, it's, um, uh, for background, not that I want to talk down these syrups, but there are also often ways where if something went slightly wrong on the malting end, the malster in-house has a lot more control. And so a lot of these syrups are made with with batches that don't quite hit specs for a, a, a brewing customer or a raw grain customer. And so it's a really good way for a malster to, to uh, divert Uh, otherwise otherwise losses and and so that's where the that's how the syrup comes about this is really nothing negative but that's that's sort of what 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 syrups are so you're giving control up I guess from a brewer's perspective right as a home brewer the downside is you're giving all this control over the 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 fresh fine uh, defined flavors and colors uh, over to that syrup maker at at the malt houses uh, the big malt houses where they make these right
1: yeah. So it sounds like, you know, it's, um, almost acts as like a fail safe. It could act as a fail if something goes wrong. Um, and you need to, you know, revive the, you know, repro- the process essentially, um, and, you know, bring it back into balance. You can, you can use this malt extract. Um, but it, it also sounds at the same time, you know, you could maybe just go straight to the extract and just use the extract primarily, um, but then that kind of takes away from the final product, I would assume. Is that true? Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly. You, uh, you know, cause it's already been boiled once and then when you take it and use it again, you're boiling it a second time. And so a lot of the, the fresh malt flavor, some of the nuances, uh, and then your, your ability to control the, the malt bill, right? The mix of grains, um, it, it is gone and, and, um, Especially homebrewers, right? On, on that smaller scale, you have so many tools. We haven't really talked about roasted malts, but one of the things, as we get get into the subject, maybe one of the things I always encourage the homebrewers is to uh, to take these specialty malts, like a chocolate malt, and cold steep it. Right? You have you have you don't need much, and so the day before you crush that grain, you put it in a little little pot, basically uh, a container at home. And 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 you know, I don't know, you need half a gallon maybe, and soak it, extract the colors and the roast flavors without cooking it, and then just pour it in um, cold rather than milling it in and mashing it in, and so um, all these all these fun steps you can take are not possible uh, when you buy the syrup, right? You you sort of, it's a it's a it's it's a it's a much larger cookie cutter, right? <laughs> it doesn't allow for any nuance and details.
1: Yeah, I yeah, feel like definitely. that just kind of takes away from the the character of it, right? You if if somebody's going to be brewing beer, you know, they're going to take the easy way out. I maybe that's not the way to put it, but you know, it sounds like you know, uh they're taking a little bit of their creativity out of it by going straight to the extract rather than creating their own, you know, uh maybe not creating their own malt, but choosing the right grains, for, you know, that they want in their beer, you know, and and having it go through the real malt process. So Um, very insightful. That was nice. Um, So, you know, kind of on, you know, we're going to touch on the malt, um, on the roasted malts here a little bit. So, um, you know, on your site, there's a lot of different, um, I guess, uh, types of, of malts listed. So can you tell us the difference in the types of malts that you offer? Like, what's the difference between high kiln, low kiln, roasted, Nordic and alternative, right? Like, I've never heard these terms. (laughs) Yeah, me
2: <laughs> So, so, um, so uh, we categorize these because it, it makes sense. They, the, the, the process drives the outcome, and so these words describe the process. So, low kiln, kilning is the drying step, and and during the kilning, during this drying, you you're making the uh, most of the flavors and the properties of of the final product, and um, and so low kiln is is all the base malts, right so a Pilsner, a pale malt, um, those all are done uh, very gently to preserve most of the enzymes, so you have good enzyme activity and and mostly you want very little color development and sort of a clean, simple flavor of malt. The high kiln is is still the same general malting process; you just go higher. In the final temperature stages during the drying, and depending on on how that's done, you end up with a Vienna, like a slightly darker malt, right, and then a Munich type, which is sort of uh, the, the most, the darkest one you normally make in a in a normal uh, germination kiln box setup. And so those are still all considered base malts, right? You can you can make a nice, rich amber with the Munich malt if you don't want to use anything else. I mean, most people blend these together in their recipes but um that's the possible and then everything else is 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 um flavor malts specialty malts color malts um and and so those are done uh with with the rest of the process and we then mostly switch switch equipment so uh so in our case um uh we can talk about the alternative and the nordic uh a little bit later but the 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 specialty malts are done in a roaster. So we have uh, further in the back uh, of the warehouse, um, it's a device like a coffee roaster. I think most of you have probably seen the little round drum uh, over a fire kind of setting with the hopper. It looks like a little uh, engine at these coffee roasters. We have a bigger version of that. Ours fits 700 pounds. Um, Wow. Yeah, I mean, a a normal coffee roaster is 20 20 kilos or so 40 pounds to 100 pounds that you see in these coffee shops so it's it's a anyway, it's fun fun big equipment um and uh and so in that we make um everything from a light colored biscuit malt so that's slightly toasted to about f- uh, 40 srms so two or three times the color power of, of a munich malt um all the way to a chocolate or um uh a uh, a roasted Roasted barley, which is uh, raw grain roasted, and it makes the darkest grain. Yeah, so light, so you're you're holding up a dark beer, that's right.
0: Yeah, this one's got chocolate malts in it, and that's what I wanted to kind of get to, is how do you make a malt taste like chocolate?
2: (laughs) So, so, uh, So you have to take into account that we're still talking about a piece of grain that we're roasting, right? So there's no vanilla there's not really sugar i mean there's obviously some malt uh, sweetness that comes from the malt but it's it's not like eating chocolate right there's no cocoa butter there's none of that yeah yeah um so it it the chocolate flavor refers to a dark rich sort of chocolate i mean you have this sort of slightly bitter but nice dark character which is sort of the dark chocolate and so how we do it is we take finished malt and throw that in the roaster it takes about 90 minutes to an hour uh, to 2 hours to bring up the temperature of this roaster right so the drum is continuously turning uh, as we heat this up and um and in that process uh, you slowly brown and darken the entire kernel that's why it takes so long right a, a normal coffee batch takes 14 to 17 18 minutes for these beans to roast but the um the, on the four grains, it's a lot longer because you have to give it more time. Otherwise, the outside burns and the inside is untouched kind of thing. So you have to be right, a little right. bit more gentle. And uh, yeah, and we just take it up to about uh, what is that, 230 Celsius, so 460 or so, right? Pretty warm. Um, and then um, and then pull it out, cool it down fairly quickly on a cooling table. Um, and and that's what chocolate malt is and so the biscuit right the lightest version so the same starting point we throw in regular malt and just toast it for 40 minutes you end up with uh with that and so then everything in between um and it's all about density so the darkest that we make is a raw barley roasted called roasted barley so if you want like a stout a pitch black stout you have to use something like that and Because the raw grain, right, we haven't malted it, so the the kernel is rock solid still. Whereas if you use malt, right, doing this modification that I talked about earlier, the kernel is broken up and friable, right? That's why it melts so nicely. Um, And so there's all these air pockets in it. So heat doesn't travel as well. It's like a little insulator, right? So it takes time for it to heat up. If we use raw grain, we can go much harder with temperature and heat exposure and make it even darker. And so that's that sort, of the, the, the sort of the trick on roasting. And so that's always dry malt. And then the other thing you can do, uh, which makes all these crystal malts, some say caramel malt, but it's really crystal malts, is when you take uh, green malt out of the germination box before you kiln it. So before it's dry, um, it's, got, it's super active, right? All the enzymes are active. The kernel is well-modified. And if you take that out and put it in a roaster, you're literally mini mashing the kernels in that heat, right? And so you 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 it's like it's like a million little brew kettles, these kernels. And after about an hour or so of sort of stewing these in their own hot juice with the enzymes further breaking down these starches, um you have this sugar juice kernel and you turn on the, the dry heat and dry it down in the roaster and you make you know, crystal ten, crystal twenty, crystal sixty, crystal eighty, these these very, very, you know, sweet, toffee ish um uh malts that make make create the the sweet backbone of any any rich beer. Um because those sugars don't ferment. So all the fermentable sugars I've made during malting are basically you know uh, fuse back together in this caramel or crystallizing process. And so crystal malts um are also specially malts made in a roaster and are primarily for residual bodies that doesn't ferment away essentially in the beer wow, so if you're that's not using syrup right, but you use malt, you can use all these ingredients to kind of fine tune you know how much back sweetness you have, what color you have right um so that that's that's why people switch to all grain mal all grain brewing right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'd love to. Like, I'm. I'm sure I've had some beers. I'm sure Reese has definitely had some beers that have that crystallized malt. <clears throat> but now I'm going to seek them out intentionally. So because I, that sounds amazing.
2: A lot of IPAs use it, right? They use pilsner, and then they put in five percent of a of a. Uh, the, there's various names, but a, a crystal twenty or a crystal forty to give it a little bit more of a color, but also then this sort of sweet backbone against the the alcohol and the, and the, and the hot bitterness. Um, Right. It's very common. So the, the crystals show up quite a bit, um, even though you don't know it. And a lot of beers to kind of balance body with bitterness.
0: Right. I'm a bit curious. Go ahead, AJ. Uh, I was going to say, that's the thing I've, I've, I've researched, you know, in some of this stuff, trying to learn more about it is the balancing act of brewing is like a science in itself, or you've got, you know, a beer that you if you're trying to hit a certain alcohol content well then you need to use a certain amount of malts and then if you don't want it to taste too biscuity or too sweet you've got to add more hops And but if you can't if you add too much hops there's got to be more of this you know like there's yeah. just so much that goes into it it's such a complex process even though it's so simple in terms of like high level number of ingredients it's pretty simple but um just to get things just perfect everything from temperature to sanitization to you know, cooling, all that stuff plays into how it tastes in the end, which is just it's just fascinating. I um I'm curious and I agree
1: that it is fascinating. Um I think that's why we are so interested in all of this. But uh so you mentioned that the you know the sugars can't be broken down. So I'm curious why the yeast aren't able to break down those those crystallized sugars. Is that so that do you know why?
2: Yeah well so the yeast you know um doesn't really break anything down the yeast um really just sort of pulls in uh while it's in flotation it right, pulls in ingredients right sugar but really only simple sugar so um so uh you know, dextrose and maltose these sort of two or three chain uh sugars anything that's more complex uh they just just don't just don't really get to right. They they can't penetrate the cell wall, so that it's not really food for them, and and hence they don't turn into alcohol and CO two right as as the yeast digests those sugars. And so um, these these complex crystallized sugars, um, you know, don't really. I mean, there's there's initial uh, enzyme activity right during mashing and all of this, so you can you can make them break down. Uh, but uh, the point is that you're not excessively mashing. But you, that you use those those crystal malts uh, in a way that this sort of sticks around so that it it ends up in your brew kettle when all the enzymes get knocked out, right? They they because they don't make it across. I mean the the part of the boiling is that kill step, right? That you get rid of all the enzyme activity, um, among other things. And uh, and so then once the yeast gets served dinner, right? <laughs> it it can only chew the small pieces, right? It doesn't have a fork or a knife, right? so that's really that's really how it comes down. So, so, uh, so you can work with that, right? I mean, that's one of these uh, advantages you have then as a brewer.
1: It's actually a wow. good thing that they that they don't have bigger appetites,
0: I suppose. <laughs> Benefits <laughs>
2: us, right. yeah, yeah, and we so sell think, to think- yeah. Go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just say. I think you touched on high kiln, low kiln, roasted. So I'm curious what Nordic and alternative.
2: Right. So alternative is, is pretty simple. It just means those are grains that, uh, most maltsters don't malt, right? Um, because there's not a lot of demand for it or the equipment doesn't allow for it. You know, some of these grains are more finicky. So those are. Um, you can call them odd ones or unusual ones or um, we we just call them alternative grains and so in our case that's triticale rye buckwheat spelt uh, corn and we malt rice here we have a a grower that grows um, the first rice that that came over in like 1640 uh, a long time ago uh, with the initial um, when, when the slave trade got going it ended up here uh, and and got got grown a lot uh, during during the initial era, and uh, um, and and is now grown again by a handful of of folks. It's it's called uh, Carolina Gold Rice, and it's grown in in North and South Carolina, and uh, and so we get some of that and malt that as well. And so those are all uh, alternative grains, as we call them, because it's those drive um, flavor and character. Uh, but don't by themselves would not make a beer. I mean, you couldn't just make a rice beer or a buckwheat beer. I mean, you still need mostly malt uh, from barley to make this happen. And so, so right. those are those. Um, and um, and we've made a little bit of a name for that because uh, we we um, yeah. As, as as long as it germinates, we'll we'll malt it. And and some of the 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 trick that we have is this Nordic malting. So the term is a little interesting only because. Um, you know, we're obviously not in Scandinavia. We don't have any Scan Scandinavian equipment or, or, you know, anything like that. And, um, uh, and I'm, I'm German. I'm not from, from, from Scandinavia either. But so Nordic is, so when I got into researching what equipment to purchase, uh, 2012 really is when I got going 13, um, I found a pretty complex, uh, Case case uh, paper project research project paper from from uh, a university up in Norway and uh, and they had figured out how craft malting could take place in Scandinavia essentially right in uh, <clears throat> primarily Norway Sweden and Finland and um, and part of that was using a roaster as a as a kiln for small batch malting and so I essentially applied uh some of these lessons from that uh what was called you know the the new modern sort of nordic malt house essentially is how they they put it because the idea was that farmers could could get into malting for the craft brewers that have popped up in 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 scandinavia and so um so that's what we do so we do batches of 300 pounds 500 pounds uh up to two thousand pounds so up to a ton of grain we we do on on a much smaller scale um in smaller vessels and uh and then use the roaster as as the drying to dry it down because the um you know if you're doing doing these odd alternative grains um you know we sell a couple bags a month not 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 you know three hundred or so they come out of the big unit yep. and so it's it's a economies of scale and then it's like R and D for us it's a little bit of research a little bit of playing a little bit of science so
0: that's awesome yeah i i, I want to go back for a second and talking about that carolina gold rice because something i found awesome on your website was a, a press release from earlier this year from june um you guys put out a statement talking about you you touched on for a second the carolina gold rice um you know, and, and the history of the slave trade and those sorts of things. And you guys have had made a commitment to investing 12% of those malt sales to social justice nonprofits that help those um, whose ancestors were harmed by the, uh, the cultivation of those grains. Um, I just wanted to, you know, bring that up because I thought that was really, really cool of you guys, especially given the current climate of of today and and uh all that stuff so i really want to just kind of call some attention to that
2: yeah no i think it's uh you know it's 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 uh, i mean it's pretty simple right i i grew up in germany and 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 there's there's a uh, pretty recent past as everybody knows uh uh with uh, during the nazi era right there there was plenty of atrocities going on and, and so there there's there's been when i was growing up uh a lot of discussions around uh, how to how to do good around uh uh you know exterminating all the jews uh, that 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 were caught in in the process and all that and so with this we kind of the goal was to do something positive going forward and, and the rise in this particular case where it right, has a has sort of a unique history around around the slave trade and slave labor um and it made sense to to uh, to acknowledge the sort of the 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 history that it has and and kind of do something going forward and so that's why we said okay let's yeah. let's invest in something that 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 you know focuses on social justice for the same people in the south here
0: yeah well would we definitely applaud you for that that's a really cool really cool to see that so that kind of transitions well into I'm I'm curious now like. You know, when we talked to Jimmy last week, one of the things, you know, that we didn't really touch on was how they select some of the ingredients that they use in the brewing process. So similar to that, I'm curious, like, you know, there's a lot of really cool, I, I encourage anybody listening to check out epiphanymalt.com because there's a lot of really cool research and, and science on there and, and really cool video clips as well of you guys sampling different um you know ingredients and things i, I want to get into kind of like how you guys select like what's your selection process so number 1 how do you go about selecting the grain that you want to use for the malt process so obviously you mentioned the different types of grains the different types of experimental things that you guys are trying but when it comes to selecting which farmers you source your ingredients from how do you actually decide if something lives up to your standards and is something that you would like to bring into your warehouse and and malt
2: so um, let's start with so the southeast, right where we are here, North Carolina, and then uh, Virginia, uh, Tennessee, all these states around us. Um, we are not traditionally malting states, right? I mean, without us handful of craft malters, there wouldn't be anybody malting here, and so um, we have a little bit the challenge of. Um, we're going out and looking for farmers, and 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 basically working with farmers directly to grow exactly what we sort of need, because uh, otherwise there is isn't really a demand for um, malting grains, and so the the selection. I think if we have any weakness here in terms of where we are regionally, it's it's the the the, the lack of selectability in in some sense, right? I have I have five farmers that I primarily work with and, and we every year we come up with how much grain I will probably need for the next year, right? That's a that's a good guess, but it's still a guess, right? It's never exactly clear. And then you have your know, weather and and other sort of pressures on the grain and the quality. And so, um we primarily and I think that's why sort of the equipment and, and how we do things here at Epiphany really come into play. We we sort of as much as we can work with the ingredients rather than selecting the ingredients uh, out of a set to find an optimum. I mean, that's that's possible in the Midwest potentially, right? And in Europe, in places where a lot more malting grain is grown, and there's a there's a there's an excess that then goes into feed markets and other places. And so there's there's selection possible. So we we don't really have that. And that's as I said, that's a sort of a strength, but also um, a, you know a weakness in some sense, right? We we definitely have a seasonal variation. Of, of quality of grain when it comes to protein levels and uh, um, a plumpness and, and sort of weathering right how how clean or how how uh, weathered the kernels are depending on what the weather was like or during the growing season so um, um, but the way we do it is pretty simple so we we get a sample in we we make a small malt uh, process here in house just with a with a pound and do it here in our lab on our tabletop uh, malting, basically very small scale. And then the rest of that sample goes to a grain lab and they send us, um, the da- data back that we can do in house here. So they then give us, you know, the protein level, um, uh, germination rates, uh, storability, um, uh, wow. sizing plumpness. So all these things that are relevant. Um, and then based on that, we say, okay, it's malting quality, or it isn't. That's really the main choice we do. So if it's really bad, we don't take it. Otherwise, um, we'll make it work.
0: Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. I think uh, being, that was one of the, one of the things that attracted us to reaching out to you guys was that number one, you know, I I took it, my wife and I took a trip to Asheville, went to Highwire brewing, which is where this beer actually comes from as well. And uh, they had a beer called fest beer, which used malts from, from, from uh from epiphany and i thought it was pronounced Ursprung, but i think it's pronounced differently um and that was a malt from german <laughs> hey it looks like Ursprung. i don't know how do you actually pronounce that
2: well i mean you're very close <laughs> Ur- ursprung is the is the german pronunciation ursprung. and it, it okay, means origin awesome. right and so and and so the story behind that uh, malt is it's where where i grew up uh and then essentially started brewing in that same same region uh, I know one of the farmers uh, still really well from my days at Eiger, and um, and when I started a malt house years years later, right, um, I reconnected, and they said, "Hey, this is fantastic, um, and we we will help you get off the ground and supply some grain." Because in our very first year, I I hadn't reach out to farmers yet because you can only grow grain once a year, right? It goes in the ground and then mm-hmm. you have to wait till the next year to do this again. And so, um, uh, I needed, I needed some grain to get started, uh, not really knowing when the business would get off the ground. And so that farmer, uh, helped us through the first couple of months until there was local grain available. And so that was great. Um, and then, and then, uh, over the years we started this, um, Project that every every March I get a load in, and we make from the German barley where I essentially grew up. Uh, uh, we make a Festmalt. It's like a Vienna style Festmalt essentially. So it's got a little bit more color, a little bit more malt flavor, and and the idea is that all these brewers who are making these these Oktoberfest lagers for you know July, August, September, whenever every whenever each of them releases those beers um they have a, you know they have a special malt that that we make specifically for this uh single origin right from a farm in in outside of munich and uh and um yeah i mean it makes great beer so um a lot of brewers yeah. started using it in the region which is pretty phenomenal for us and then great for the brewers it's just it's just fun to have a choice right
0: yeah
1: definitely that that's really cool so you know, um before we started the show, you mentioned that you had uh made a trip up to wheatland and um that they had a beer um brewed with a um ancient grain. I think you actually mentioned that it was um george washington uh, a beer that uh- um uh, i'm sorry a grain that George Washington used um from back you know way back when um so I'm kind of wondering um were you involved in that process? Were you the one that was malting that ancient grain? And if not, have you done any ancient grains?
2: So, um, uh, so to, to clarify this, so on this trip, when I saw Wheatland Springs, I, uh, I also saw the distillery at Mount Vernon. So at the, at the old estate from George Washington and those, those folks, they use those old grains. So I do that, do that for them. Um, Wheatland, Wheatland, they grow some of their grain on site. And so some of that gets malted for them and they make their own estate ale. And so, but yeah, so we make, so these old, old varieties, they're called landrace varieties, um, are, um, you know, are challenging all the way around, but have very, very unique and distinct flavors. So the challenge is, you know, they have much lower yield. So the, the, it's more expensive to grow them compared to a modern barley or other crop, and and they're not as well uh, adapt, and you can't use a lot of the tricks, right? That, that modern science <laughs> has given us to treat the to treat this, and um, and uh, and this takes a lot of care and and attention to make this come out right, but w- once it does, um, so we have this old bear variety that we are, we are malting um uh for the distillery at mount vernon so so when when back in those days um when the when the when the farm caretaker who was doing all the distilling uh, for george washington at um, mount vernon uh they they there was no enzymes that you could buy and pour in right in today's world most distillers use use industrial enzymes and you and use them for for fermenting the grains um, and back then you needed a barley so barley has a unique character of having eight different enzymes in it i mean there's like no other grain that has that complex set of enzymes coming in one package and so it, it's the the natural choice to 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 break down a f- any small grain for fermentation so even in a rye whiskey or certainly in a corn type whiskey um, or any other grain you use you need some malted barley in order to to break it down during the mash process by doing your wash when you make the wash um, for distilling and so somebody on their end dug out in the archives what they were using because it's not mentioned in the recipes somehow uh, at least not not obviously and so they figured out it was a, a Scottish bear. So very, really, very really old barley from Scotland. And, um, Ensign Mills in South Carolina, they are a specialty grain, uh, uh, discovery, uh, among other things. You know, they're mill and they're mill for flour, but mostly they're also, um, Glenn there, he, he's rediscovering all these old grains and brings them back to life from, from archives. And, um, And so that's where that barley is coming from. And so we are, we're malting some for them. uh, That's absolutely fascinating. It's really cool. Um,
1: Yeah. It's, I, um, I first heard about ancient grains a a couple of years back at a restaurant and they had mentioned it and I really had no idea, you know, what they, what they meant. They just, they had mentioned that it was, you know, something from, you know, early, you know, settler era type of grain. And so, you know, you've kind of expanded that for me, uh, certainly. So, Um, yeah, I just, I find it fascinating and I, you know, I could probably ask you more about it, but, um, I do want to move on to the next topic if you will. Um, and so this is going to be kind of like a two part question real quick. So, um, first off, can you tell, um, so, so let me get through this whole question. So can you first, um, tell what type of malt you will get out of a grain before putting it through the process? And then the second part of that is when a brewer wants to use your malts in their beer, how are you know, how after they, you know, do they just look at the malt? Is there like a flavor profile? Is there a way for them to to choose the right malt for their project?
2: So let's start with one. Uh so in based on the analysis that we get from the grain lab, right, on what the what the raw structure and, and, and sort of spec specifications are what the grain delivers, we can we can pretty much tell if it's gonna make a good Munich malt or a good Pilsner malt and it's ma- mainly based on protein and uh and extract content and um so so we can do that. And then uh and that's pretty much it. After that the process takes over, right? Depending on how, how we malt. Uh and it's again it's really just temperature and moisture, right? Those are the and fresh air versus reuse air. So we have three levers we can pull to change things over the week long process. And and so based on what we do we can we can we can go for for high color, low color, uh, more extract, which means often less enzymes or more enzymes, less extract. So you kind of trade off certain characteristics for others in the malting process to make that work. So so yes we can tell Ooh. Where we can go with the grain, or what we need to do to get it where we want it to go, basically, right? And to the second question, um, for the brewers, absolutely, and and the main determinant or determining factor really is the color. Initially, it's the easiest way for a brewer to have sort of a base understanding of where this goes, um, because in the end, even though we have we have all A bunch of ways to to manipulate what comes out on on the malting end um the more color the more flavor and then the darker it gets once you're beyond color right initially you make your yellow to straw to golden right to dark red to amber and 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 then you get into brown and once you hit brown um uh you're roasting right and then everything switches completely. Um and and you're just then talking about colour um and then these chocolate or coffee or roast roast characters. But um the other grains are, are pretty pretty straightforward uh in terms of uh malt, maltiness and sweetness besides the colour. But these things uh are very closely aligned the way the process works. So yes the brewer's just by knowing the color, um, they know they know where it goes based on the recipe uh, development.
1: Awesome! And so yep. I I did hear that like you could taste it also like if they actually took some of the malt could could you get the flavor just by you know kind of chewing on the malt?
2: So so the chewing it, it sort of works, but the chewing is more uh, a, a, a sort of a quality assessment, right? If it's you really want to know if the mold is somehow, in extreme cases, wet, so it would not chew. It would really chew rather than crackle, um, and then you get a, a freshness and some flavor uh, impression. But um, on one of the videos that we have on our website, you can see us having these mason jars and these funnels and making these little steeps, and those are those are essentially. They're called hot steeps, or you know, it's like a barley tea essentially. And so, with those, you make individual grain teas really from those base malts, and you can just uh, essentially do a do a sensory with malt rather than with beer. Right, a lot of brewers do sensories on their beers to assess uh, you know true to style, true to their brand, right? These these flavor variations over time, and in this case, you you can essentially uh, compare different malsters. You know, if you compare our Munich malt to the one that, you know, Murphy and Root makes in Virginia or Admiral out uh, in San Francisco. And then your breeze and Canada malting and all these bigger guys, um, there, there are flavor differences, even though it's the same style of malt, which is in this case now, as an example, the Munich, right? So, so you, you can then as a brewer determine what shade of that you really like, right? Uh, Cause once the grain is mixed, it's hard, right? If you mix a bunch of different grains, obviously that that gets sort of washed out. And certainly once you add the hops in your brew kettle, but right, You have that things get layered over that are harder to to then differentiate. So, um, yeah, hot steep malt sensory is is a very good way for a brewer to pre-assess the individual malts.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah very helpful. Yeah, definitely. That's one of the videos I was referencing earlier. That was pretty cool. Um, and that, that, yeah, that's very, very interesting. Um, so I guess along with that question, are, are craft brewers, that's always a hard word for me to say craft brewers. Are they your primary customers? Is that who you primarily are distributing to?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't, I don't have any, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't have any macro brewer. Um I mean so we have uh you know I've I've sold um for special projects uh some all to uh you know big craft brewers like um Creature Comforts in Athens Georgia or Sierra Nevada uh, the the one in Asheville here. Um Yeah. I just uh, uh last week I was up at Dogfish um which you know which now that they merged with Boston Beer is a pretty big. Pretty big small brewer, right? Um, yeah. But at Dogfish, they have um, we are working together on a, a zero emissions so carbon neutral uh, beer that we we work work on <clears throat> by sourcing the right grains and and everybody doing the right right thing and uh, and it's called Regen Ale uh, from regenerative farming and and so um, in this this is now going for a year and a half. Uh, with preparations and then actually brewing that beer and um and we we've some of our farmers have have uh, started changing some of their practices and so we we're actively trying to uh sequester co2 into the ground through uh, alternative farming methods so it's it's pretty cool it's really neat and so um so yeah so those are my big malts uh, my big brewer customers but um those are a handful of projects the the the, the people who help us make this a business are um, you know, under under 10,000 barrel uh, brewers, most of them.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And obviously North Carolina is, like I mentioned, I, my wife and I took a trip to Asheville. It's a, it's like a Mecca on the Eastern shore for uh, craft breweries, uh, not Eastern shore, Eastern, Eastern part of the United States. But um, yeah. So I, and I noticed something on your website, too, is that you do custom projects and you can work directly with breweries to, you know, figure out like a custom You can it allows them essentially to have their hand in the uh, malting process. And you kind of touched on that a second ago to make sure that you know people can taste test the uh, through the steeping method, the malts that they get, um, which is really awesome. So obviously both me, Reese and I are both from Virginia. So I'm curious, any large breweries or any breweries in our area that use your malts? that we could try out?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think where you guys are, there, there is, so uh, in, in both locations, right. So I have, um, Benchtop in Norfolk. I love right? Benchtop. Benchtop. Yeah. yeah. Eric there uh, and his wife, Talia, they're, they're great customers of ours. And we work with them really close to, uh, kind of make this, you know, make this a, a really good experience for, for everyone involved, uh, our philosophy is for those folks who really work with us that they, that they feel as if our malt house is essentially in the back of the brewery like it used to be. Right. So a hundred, 150 years ago, there weren't really malting companies. The brewers were malting themselves. If anything, there was somebody mm-hmm. who had like a roaster and made specialty malts uh, as a business. But other than that, um, malting was very much part of brewing, uh, in-house. And so, um, and so so at least in spirit we want to do that. And so with um so there's Benchtop um, Wheatland Springs right up in in Northern Virginia. Also a very good customer of ours um and uh and uh and then I mentioned earlier right that Usel Finch uh they recently bought some specialty malts from us for their darker beers. So that that's been fun. Um uh yep. yeah.
0: That's awesome. Well, yeah, I didn't know that. I've been to Benchtop. I did not I did not know that they used your malts, but now I do. Um, I know, Reese, you mentioned you're going to check out, uh, what was it, Wheatland Farms? Wheatland said? Farms, yeah. Wheatland Farms and Ouzle Finch I have not been to yet, but that's in Fort Monroe. A stone's throw away from me, so I definitely have to make it over there to make sure I try some of that out. Um, So, I mean, I guess, you know, we're coming to a close here. I, I kind of, I feel like you've touched on this throughout the interview, um, you know, but I want to kind of give you know, just a second here to to talk about what, what sets Epiphany's malts apart from other craft malts. And also apart from like malts that you see in, you know, some, like you said, the macro breweries, like, you know, what sets craft malts apart from big beer sort of malts? And then what sets you guys apart from everyone else?
2: Oh, that's, that's a big question right there. Um, so, so what, it the easier one is I, I think to talk about uh big mold versus small mold in that sense or, or how it compares. So um uh you know we 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 are we are sort of small and and sort of curious uh agile uh, you know, as Epiphany specifically I think we 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 really um me and my team uh we are we really go into into the the littlest detail to make sure we come out at the right end of all of this. And so, I have a pretty strong brewing uh, and malting background. Um, my main malster is is a Virginia Tech grad, and she's a geneticist, so she knows everything about uh, barley breeding and has worked with those folks for a couple of years, uh, getting her masters and all that. And so, so awesome. So between between the two of us already, we have we have uh, a, a lot of Know-how, or at least know where to turn to, and, and so this is really sort of driving, driving uh, sort of us as a as a malt house this sort of uh, really scientific uh, and analytical approach. Um, and then you know we we know our farmers, so it's all uh, single source, single origin, all the small batches. We blend very little, uh, most of the time, not at all, and so you get true to batch characteristics. Um, because each batch even though we sort of the process is repetitive and very well controlled um is slightly different it's a natural uh, you know uh process that has variation like everything else and and so um and i think we really deliver something unique by doing that um and uh and big mold is sort of the the the, the opposite right where it's it's huge huge batches uh Many many uh, lots get aggregated, uh, malted, and then blended for consistency. Right? They, they, they. Um, it's it's not about variation. It's about volume, cost efficiency, um, and 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 delivering something consistent over over you know a year, two years as sort of the grain harvests sort of switch around. The whole point is to to stay consistent. So they they just have a very very different focus based on their. Their primary customers which are the big brewers right even though all of us here in craft beer or in the craft beer movement are many we are few when it comes to total volume right so right, i'm a lot right. more i'm a lot more like my customers right it's a handful of people we are small business we do custom yeah. things we change things to make it better all the time and uh and then but most of those folks buy from a big supplier that you know the the salesperson may know you, but that's about it. They're not making mold thinking about any of the craft brewers because it's it's just not it's just not uh relevant for all the right reasons of how their business works right and they um, they make multiple rare calls a day and i you know and, and three rare cars is is a year worth of of production on our end right so it's a it's really a a huge difference and so that that sort of I think where the main difference is. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, and that's, that resonates in the craft beer community, obviously, you know, I I think Reese and I both are part of different Facebook groups and things with craft beer fans, you know, for Virginia, for nationwide and people will refuse to buy anything in some cases that has big, anything tied to it, whether it's ingredients or, you know, if, if a small brewery got bought out by a larger you know um you know somebody gets bought out by anheuser Busch. it's like okay well i'm not buying that beer anymore things like that um you know on one hand it's like well congratulations to the brewery they've just you know made a lot of money they succeeded as a business they got purchased by a large corporation they made a bunch of money so good for them but for the folks out there who want to support their local brewery because they're local and because they're using you know ingredients that come from local farmers and it, it trickles down you know to the very bottom of everybody all the suppliers, all the distributors and things like that. So I think if, if you're somebody, which I think Reese and I both are who like to support small local breweries, um, using or, or supporting a brewery that uses a smaller manufacturer such as yourself, who then supports local farms as well, you know, you can feel good about buying beer that has, um, you know, craft malts in there. So that's, that's really cool to hear.
1: Yeah. It's kind of a widespread effect. You know, you, you know, you kind of see the whole supply chain and it's, you know, rather than buying from, you know, a large company, you're kind of buying from your, your local brewery and it's affecting the whole economy around you, which, you know, I think is, uh, certainly feels good. And, you know, more people should kind of hop on that, especially in these kind of trying times with, you know, small businesses struggling. Um, you know, there was a craft beer day, um, couple months back and i know you and i both made sure to go out and and buy a bunch of craft brews um, from our craft brewery so yeah you know certainly recommend uh, anybody else listening to support your craft brewers um so we're coming to a close here and i got a couple more questions um you know really this is something exciting that aj and us you know we wanted to ask you and you know, you said that you made a trip up to Wheatland, so I'm just wondering: Do you have any special projects in the works that you're particularly excited about that you'd like to share with us? I should probably say that as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, there's there's a, there's a, a a couple that um, that we've I think mostly uh, touched on on the on the on the core pieces, right? So the, we are our commitment to become carbon neutral as sort of. A malting business uh, from from the seed going into the ground so all the way farming through us um, that's ongoing and and that that's primarily with dogfish and i'm trying to the the on that end for me is i'm i'm, I'm trying to pull in a bunch of my regular customers um to kind of also sort of go that route because said that, that obviously is not going to go away and, and especially for us who are all using the ingredients that are grown around here we want to make sure that that's possible uh, for a long time to come and and so everybody's playing their part um, i think is 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 a good one and then um, uh, there's another project that um so wheatland we're trying to figure out how to uh, serve them better with their estate ale so there's there's got to be some some sorting out of of small malting and how that works uh, either here or, or sort of like a, a pilot set up on their farm potentially or something like that. Um, so there's, there's some, some of those things where we're trying to, uh, you know, maybe, maybe make our malt house be mobile in some sense. Right. Um, Oh, cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And, um, and then I, you know, I, I more and more try and communicate, uh, Directly with uh, the folks who are turning to us, right? That, that's that's I guess another project. It's it's less on the malt end, but it is really about focusing on on the folks that are already interested in what we're doing and how we're doing things, and and uh, and it's, it's communication is everything, and so improving that is really uh, especially now with uh, with sort of where, where you can't just go by and visit anymore as easily. Uh, certainly. It's it's not as comfortable sometimes. Right, if you just show up, it's it's sort of not not a good time to do that uh, unannounced. And so, um, dialing that in has been a huge challenge for us, uh, certainly uh, around all this um, and trying to figure out how to stay connected.
1: Yeah, makes sense. So, um, I guess uh, I guess that's it, AJ. I think the
0: if there's any more questions from you, AJ, what, do you have anything else? No I mean really I think at this point I, I you know where can where can people learn more about epiphany craft malts
2: well so there's there's obviously our website right specifically uh, uh, our our home and and uh, and there's everything about us is can be found there from ingredients to to what we do and who we are and um and then uh, especially on the homebrew side uh, if people want to uh, get more more into using us uh, it, Atlantic Brew Supplies in Raleigh they have a an online store that ships uh, homebrew uh, quantities. So uh, we, we are we are not set up here ourselves to 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 ship under fifty five pound bags really, so we don't have a, a homebrew outlet, but um those folks do and they do really well and they they ship nationwide, no trouble. Um and so um I assume most of your listeners will probably end up in that field. And so it's a really good resource. So Atlantic Brew Supplies in Raleigh.
1: Okay, it's we'll make sure to, the to provide to. a link to both websites and certainly shout out Atlantic uh, Brew Supply. So um, this has been absolutely fantastic. So Um, Thank you so much, Sebastian. And for the listeners out there, whether you're a brewery or a distillery or just someone looking to learn more about malts and what Epiphany Craft Malts has to offer, please check out their website at epiphanymalt.com and give them a follow on Instagram
0: at their handle at Sweet. Yeah, absolutely. And Sebastian, just thank you again for taking the time out of your night to chat with us. I know it's a late night. Uh, I'm sure you're ready to get out of the warehouse by now, but uh, it's been a lot of fun learning. And you, I mean, obviously, I think mission accomplished. Reese and I both uh, learned a lot, you know, here, <laughs> and hopefully the uh, our listeners take away something from this episode as well. And uh, for me, I'm I'm ready to go out and buy some more beer that has uh, you know malt forward characteristics, and you know, obviously shop those breweries that use Epiphany Malt. Maybe I'll just make a trip to Bench Benchtop. It's like a 15 minute drive from my house, um, so I go check those guys out and make sure. Give me me the one that's got Epiphany in there. Um, So, but yeah, this has been awesome. And for everyone out there listening, you know, we'll see you guys in the next one. We'll be back on Friday, recording on Friday with another regularly scheduled episode. So we'll see you guys then. But again, make sure you check out Sebastian and everything they've got going on at Epiphany. And until then, we'll see you guys later. Thanks, Sebastian. Thanks, guys.
2: Yeah, take care. All right. All (laughs) righty.